coming close to death actually puts you in a very unique position where you become extremely aware how quickly everything can be taken away from you. And so I guess you you sort of live your life in a different way. The urgency uh, of doing what you feel you're put here to do and enjoying what you have becomes more salient. I think adversity is kind of like, if life is a game of snakes and ladders, adversity can be a ladder or a snake. And you sort of can choose which one you want it to be because it can teach you a bunch of lessons and make you stronger as a result and it can be a ladder or you can allow it to affect you negatively and it can become a snake. There's really no such thing as good luck or bad luck, but it's very much in in the eyes of the beholder. Hey, my dear listeners, welcome back to yet another episode of Inspire Someone Today. Instead of letting adversity consume him, he let it drive him. If life throws a lemon at you, what do you do? Well, our guest makes a cocktail out of it. Being given a 10% chance of living and eventually losing both his legs and hands at the age of 19, his determination to turn lemons into serious lemonade has seen him become a celebrated global keynote speaker, an international DJ, and a wonderful, wonderful human being. It's an absolute joy and pleasure to have Tom Nash on this episode of Inspire Someone Today. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the kind words as well, Srikant. Well, it's been an absolute joy to kind of uh, see your backstory, uh, to kind of see how you have uh, reinvented more than that, the messages that you have for the larger humanity out there, uh, Tom. I think as we kind of jump right in here, despite what happened to you at the age of 19, my interactions with you and what I've seen of you on all the TED Talks, uh, things like that, has been, you're so upbeat full of life. How is this happening? How do you kind of make those frames of reference to stay in the zone that you are in? And how can one develop those frames of references? Generally speaking, I'm a pretty positive person. I think it comes down to the fact that you sort of have a choice whether to be positive or negative, upbeat or downtrodden. And it just doesn't make sense to me to be anything other than upbeat (laughs) because uh, that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy in either direction. You know, we could have negative feedback loops of negativity or positive feedback loops of positivity. So I think it it just makes sense to have a sunnier disposition, you know, where you believe you've afforded the opportunity, I guess. And coming to developing those frames of references, how did you go about doing that? Well, I mean... Coming close to death actually puts you in a very unique position where you become extremely aware how quickly everything can be taken away from you. And so I guess you you sort of live your life in a different way. The urgency uh, of doing what you feel you're put here to do and enjoying what you have becomes more salient. And also the fact that at the age that you are in when you encountered this uh, decision making of do you want to kind of 
have your hand amputated or do you want to kind of want to die? That was the remark your doc made. And you had to make that difficult choice, right? And has those perspectives changed for you due to the circumstances? Or have you made a conscious decision, effort to think differently as you kind of moved on uh, from that uh, life incident? Well, I think, you know, you touched on a really interesting moment in my life there, which was when I was in hospital and I was in hospital for about 18 months in total, but it was within the first couple of months that I had my legs amputated and then my arms amputated. And for the first couple of months, I very much felt like everything was happening to me rather than me having a say in what went on. You know, when you're that close to death and on life support and losing limbs and 80% of the rest of my body was an open wound, I was in unimaginable amount of pain. And I truly mean quite literally unimaginable because it's an amount of pain I didn't know existed (laughs) before I experienced it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you're in that position, you very much get the sense that you want to check out, you know, that you don't want to be there anymore. And when the doctor presented to me and said, you know, you have these two options. You can either have your arms amputated and live with prosthetics. It's rare, but people, it happens. Um, or you can choose to keep them. And I said, oh, I sensed a catch and I said, what's the catch? And he said, well, you'll die. And um, I thought that was quite funny in the moment because he was, A, he was making a bit of a joke about it and tapping into my dark sense of humor. But at the same time, he was also giving me a choice such that if I didn't want to continue on in this way, this was my, this was my get out, right? This was my opportunity to make a decision that would end my own life. And so obviously I, I chose the former to have my arms amputated and it was the first semblance of control I had over the situation as a whole. And what that did to me is it kind of imbued me with a sense of responsibility that, okay, I've made this decision now, so I'm committed to it. And there's no going back. And does this incident pain you? I'm sure there are tons of people who talk to you about this incident and you got to kind of repeat this story again and again and again. So each time you kind of narrate this story, what does it do to you internally? What emotions comes to you? I think it has a a positive effect on me talking about it so much because it really reinforces the idea that I did make that decision. Uh, I don't have any uh, negative associations with telling any parts of my story. I mean, I just wrote a book that I released a couple of months ago on the whole thing. And uh, I I spent a couple of years having to write through some of the most traumatic parts of my life. And, you know, there were some parts when I had to viscerally recall memories from really dark times that affected me emotionally. But what I realized was that the times that I was most affected when writing about my past was thinking about my situation from the perspective of others, and in particular, my parents, uh, because to the extent that I felt helpless in the situation, they would have felt even more helpless. Hmm. And I think in many respects, it was more difficult for them and my close friends and all the people around me that supported me. And I had to, you know, somewhat for the first time really put myself in their shoes and think about what it would have been like to watch a family member or a friend go through something horrible. And so I guess those, those memories affect me more than what happened to me because I'm, I'm relatively at peace with what happened to me for the most part, you know? 
that's the hardest part isn't it uh, you're near and near and dear ones going through those kind of emotional upheavals and again mm-hmm. we do say that lot of things happen in retrospect if you look at it saying that okay probably this is what was kind of lined up for me and here you are after that incident not sitting there cribbing about it but you kind of did a complete 360 degree of who you are turned out to the best motivational speaker turned out to be the dj uh, turned out to be an entrepreneur i'm sure your folks would be proud and happy to how you have reinvented your life yes uh, i certainly hope they are i haven't asked them recently but we'll see <laughs> <laughs> but with that said uh, walk us through a lot of our listeners might not know the backstory of uh, tom they do not know who dj hooky is What's the life yes. in a day, in a week of uh, Tom Nash? And what's the backstory to all of this, DJ? Yeah. Um, so my backstory is that I was a regular Australian middle-class kid. Uh, I actually was born in South Africa and then I grew up in America. And then I moved here when I was about eight or something like that. I just went to high school. I was an average student. I used to like playing the guitar. I really love music and I think I just really liked having a creative outlet because I also liked to write, you know, anything that was creative. It wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to do as a vocation, but it was definitely something that was a, an outlet for me and a, a kind of release and it it balanced my life in a, in a really good way. Uh, and I was at first year uni when I got sick and I came down with meningococcal disease. A meningococcal disease, for those who I'm sure aren't really aware, acts kind of like a meningitis and it's a, it causes septicemia, which is like a blood poisoning. And if you don't pick it up early enough, uh, your extremities, i.e. your feet and your hands and parts of your body can get gangrene on them. Was, there's a lot of pirate references in my story, right? So the gangrene and the hooks and, you know, all I need is the parrot. Yes. Um, <laughs> but so when I was 19, I, I fell ill with this disease and I caught it a little bit too late. So I had gangrene on my feet and hands. I had a purple rash all over my body. And I had about a 10% chance of survival. I was extremely lucky to have been caught early enough to save my life. But it did follow that I had to be in hospital for 18 months, six of which was spent in a burns unit treating my skin. Uh, before that was life support. I was in a coma for a while. And then about a year in a rehabilitation hospital, learning to walk with prosthetic legs and use two prosthetic arms to navigate the world and become independent again. I guess since that time, which was about 20 years ago, it it definitely recalibrated my priorities quite a lot. I mean, before that, I was studying psychology at university just out of interest and a sense of obligation for tertiary education. But it wasn't anything that I I wanted to do as a job necessarily. And so I sort of changed my direction a bit and I thought, well, I'd, I'd like to do something in the music industry. I didn't necessarily want to be an artist because, you know, they don't earn too much money and I don't think I was good enough. So I studied uh, sound engineering. Actually, I did like a degree in sound engineering and then I did a music business management course after that as well because I didn't want to be the starving artist. And around the same time, I actually developed a way that I could play the guitar again with my hooks. And that was an interesting process because, you know, the the engineering of it wasn't actually the interesting part because I developed a bunch of systems that didn't really work very well. And then I ended up with a slide system that would 
uh, clip into my left hook and a pick system that would hook into my right. And I converted my slide, uh, my guitar to a slide like a lap steel. But yeah, the best innovation that I found from problem solving in that way wasn't the engineering part of it. It was the redefining of the question, which was, you know, do I want to be Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> and the answer to that is no. And the answer to that has always been no. So the things that I really liked about playing the guitar were being able to play with my friends, being able to write music, maybe even perform a little bit. And to be able to do those things, you didn't need to create a really um, intricate system of playing guitar. You just needed something that could play some chords such that you could write music and play with a group of people. And so by redefining the problem, it was much easier to find a solution. And that's something that I kind of live by to this day is that sometimes problem solving starts with redefining and working your way backwards from the end. And I guess that was that was the impetus uh, for my entire career because I did more with uh, playing guitar with no hands than I did when I had hands. I mean, I'd never mm-hmm. really recorded any music. I'd never started a band and I'd never played live properly. But with that increased sense of urgency that I experienced uh, after almost losing my life, you know, the idea to stop wasting time is a lot more salient, right? And so I did just that. And I started a band with some friends. And, you know, we started recording music and touring and playing around. Um, And the band wasn't very good, but it didn't really matter at the end of the day, because I was enjoying the process very much. And unbeknownst to me, it was kind of the impetus for a new career, because I started uh, organizing a lot of the uh, gigs that we were playing as a band. And I developed some relationships with some nightclubs and things over here. And then when I was at the end of my music business diploma, we were forced to do sort of work experience. And I'd kind of reached Mm -hmm. out to one of the um, club owners that I'd worked with organizing some bands and stuff when we were playing. And he said, yeah, you know, come in and do some work experience and start helping to run nights, sort of book bands and DJs and promote And I just had a bit of a knack for it. And I was able to make a night more cohesive brand wise, musically tap into different markets. And I took their Thursday night from 20 people to 200 people to 700 people within a matter of a couple of months. And that was the longest uh, running Thursday nights in Australia from what I heard. It ran for about 12 years. No, that was this was the precursor to what you're thinking of. Um, Uh so, so this, I'm still sort of dragging this out a bit. Sorry about that. But, um, uh, that was the, that was the kernel upon which my, uh, closest friend, Chris and I decided that we were going to try and do our own brand Uh because he was starting to play a bit of music DJing and I had never DJ before, but, uh, had a little bit of a, you know, experience in the administrative and, and marketing and branding of a, uh, and promotion of a night. And so we thought well, we can do this together. So we started thinking of, you know, what would make an, a club night that takes or, you know, borrows ideas from a bunch of things we don't, we like and discards that which we don't. And, um, and we also thought, well, maybe we can sort of identify some false assumptions as to what it takes to create a DJ out of nothing. Because he wasn't really a proper DJ. I'd never DJed. And so if we're going to do a night and become, uh, well, if we're going to become DJs, doing a night would be a great way to actually become one because then you could just make yourself the headline DJ. And no one had really been doing that. 
so we we use that as a sort of platform from which we could test a lot of those false assumptions that you know in order to become a really successful DJ that you need to you know practice and have equipment and make mixtapes and all of this sort of stuff. And so we decided to take all those resources and start from the end and create this nightclub and then just bill ourselves as the headline DJs. And it kind of worked because, you know, on our opening night, we had 500 people or something like that. And I I got up and did my first ever DJ set in front of all of them. And I was rubbish. But, but at the end of the day, they didn't care because they weren't there for that. They were there for the brand that we created, the cohesion and the hype that we surrounded it with. And so what we really were was context creators more than anything else. Um, and we only expected that to, to last a few months. It was a bit of fun. And, it, and yeah, it ended up lasting for 13 years. And we did every single uh, Saturday night for that entire period where we would run a Saturday night event, sometimes a Sunday night event. After about six months, we started getting asked to DJ at other nightclubs. After a year, we got offered our own stage at Australia's biggest music festival. We played all the the large music festivals that came to Australia that toured around. We played internationally and we became DJs because that was the best area to learn to DJ was in the deep end of the pool, right? Not in your bedroom playing to yourself where sure you might've developed the technical skills necessary to be able to mix tracks together, but you don't have a feedback of an audience. You don't have. You're not in the field. Exactly. So we inadvertently had created this fantastic learning ground for us to become really good DJs really quickly. And so we accept, you know, while we would have spent a year or two honing our skills, trying to become DJs, doing it in reverse actually worked better for us. And so that's, that's been my career for, um, you know, since I think 2006, I was doing that until 2018 or something uh, every week. And we, and we still actually do club nights, not in a weekly capacity, but we're getting a bit older now. We both have different careers. Um, but I mean, I've got a club uh, night coming up in three weeks. We're doing a mm-hmm. Halloween party. As you can see, I've got my little skeleton guy to the back there. Yes. <laughs> he's he's going uh, to be part of our decorations for our Halloween night. So we do a, a two or three nights a year where we get about six or 800 people to nightclubs and still DJ to them. In, right now, we just do it for fun because we still love it just in a reduced capacity due to our other obligations. Um, but then since about that 2018, 19, I've been much more developing my speaking career. I think I have had enough life experience and interesting stories that I can pass on to people that I think are valuable. And I think there's a, there's a bit of a calling in that where I think I can, you know, disseminate some pragmatic ideas uh, onto the rest of the population as best I can if they'll listen to me. Absolutely. Talk about pragmatic ideas. I, I think they do say that adversity is a great example, a great lesson for people to kind of unearth who they are. And you have gone through adversities in a true sense in a lot of many ways, physical, mental, uh, your own evolution over the last uh, couple of decades. And as you were talking about it, you did mention about a couple of very interesting pieces. One is about the whole thought process, creativity. How has that particular piece evolved for you? What is creative thinking? Uh, what is lateral thinking for you? And how have you kind of honed in those uh, skills as you have kind of redefined 
how you need to kind of look at life day in day out yeah i mean the first time it ever dawned on me that i was going to have to think differently to solve problems was when i was trying to first get up a step when i was walking with prosthetic legs and i realized that i couldn't go up forward because i didn't have ankle movement and i had to turn my body sideways to go up a step mm -hmm. and so even when i go i can do it a bit better on a diagonal now but when i go down steps i'm always going down sideways and one at a time um and it's not that interesting other than from the fact that it, it taught me that I was going to have to think differently to solve problems. That's kind of how I approach everything these days. I certainly did with the with the guitar solution. I do in my career now, I did with DJing, like everything I try and think of, you know, a way to circumnavigate path dependence a lot. And so I think that that's uh, something that has been imbued upon me through having a disability, but I don't think it's something that needs to arise from adversity. I think adversity is kind of like, if life is a game of snakes and ladders, adversity can be a ladder or a snake. And you sort of can choose which one you want it to be, because it can teach you a bunch of lessons and make you stronger as a result, and it can be a ladder, or you can allow it to affect you negatively, and it can become a snake. Beautiful. So beautifully put. And how have you grown through these setbacks? You mentioned a lot about how you have reinvented yourself, taken on things that you enjoy. It's more about enjoying the process than anything else. Reflecting back, if you were to kind of pick one or two pieces and say, okay, this is what has catapulted me in that growth journey. How have you grown through these setbacks? So for me, a lot of my mental anguish and my physical anguish actually tracked the same path. And I'm pretty sure that the physical informed the mental. So back when I was not feeling as positive during hospital, it was almost the same time that I was in a lot of physical pain. And I think the reason for that is that it stunted my ability to actually progress. And, you know, there was this story that I tell in the, in the book about I remember really clearly this point in my childhood where, um, you know, I was, a, I was a late bloomer for many things. And one of those things was riding a bike. And my dad was dedicated to getting me to, to ride a bike because, you know, I was maybe eight or something like that. And I, I hadn't learned how to do it yet. And so he would be holding me from under my arms on the bike and balancing me while I was trying to pedal. And I would always keep saying to him, okay, don't let go, don't let go. Like, I'm getting it, I'm getting it. But I wouldn't really get it. And I was sort of wobbling all over the place. And then one day I kind of increased speed a little bit and I was getting a bit better. And I kept saying to him, you know, don't let go. And then he just let go of me. And the point at which he let go, I realized that the thing that was keeping me balanced was momentum. It was the forward motion was the part that was going to keep me from falling over. And him holding me was actually holding me back, even though I thought it wasn't. I thought it was the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I had exactly the same moment the, the first time I learned to walk without the assistance of uh, a wardsman when I was in hospital. We'd have these days where we'd practice every, you know, walking every day. And I got to the point after months of like grueling, trying to walk on prosthetic legs with the help of five people in a walking frame. You know, at one point I was, I got to the stage where I was walking with just, just one guy holding me under my arm. And I felt that sensation of speed and momentum build up. And I was the one to tell the wardsman, I'm like, let go of me. 
And yeah. as soon as he did, I was just, I had a pace about the way I was walking that I knew I wasn't going to fall over. And it was, it just reminded me of that day riding the bike. And I'd learned that lesson that momentum was the thing that was taking you forward. And I realized that now, and I, I transposed that idea even onto things to do with my relationships or my life where, you know, something needs to be happening. You need to be doing something. It's being stagnant and just sitting and thinking about things is all well and good in times. But unless you have things going that you can add to, that you can learn from with feedback, that provides you your momentum. And I think these days, so many people have that problem of, oh, I don't want to put myself out there for fear of being judged by people, let's say. And I think that anyone who who was able to sort of get over that internal monologue that happens, because that's that's the only place it exists, right? Nobody cares about your life as much as you do. Nobody is judging you the way you think they are. And mm-hmm. if you just start doing the work and having conversations and putting yourself out there, you know, whether it be in a relationship or at work or in your personal life or reaching out to friends or whatever it is, you need those kernels to just start and you, and you need to pay attention to them and learn from them and get feedback. And the momentum is actually what's going to propel you forward. I'm called for that momentum. And a lot of it has got to do with mental resilience. I know you hit the word resilience. We'll quickly come to that. A lot of it has got to mental toughness than what you actually want to do. Is that right? I guess so. But I think, you know, mental toughness is something that is a skill that you develop, right? Mm-hmm. But you can only develop it by doing things like, you know, utilizing momentum, right? So you can't sit in a room by yourself and become mentally tough. You you have to be an active participant in your life in order to grow. Yeah. That's the key. And how much of uh, self-reflection has come to your aid in becoming the person that you are in reinventing the life that you have reinvented, Tom? Almost all of it. I mean, I I need to, because I, I, I truly believe that reframing things that happened in the past are crucial to gaining that momentum and moving forward, right? And mm-hmm. you know, the way that we frame things that have happened in our past, whether they be positive or negative, really informs the future. It informs the present and the present informs the future, right? And it's crazy when you think that you you can make the decision of how you view things in your life. I could make the decision to look back on what happened to me and say, well, isn't that horrible? <clears throat> or let's put it another way. I have a really uh, sort of interesting understanding of luck now, right? Because uh, I was, uh, I remember I was in hospital still and there was a, I was in the gymnasium, which is this awful huge building with filled with medicine balls and tilt tables and all this crap. It looked like a medieval torture room or something. And I was sitting there waiting to, you know, do something. And um, this guy rolls in, he was a quadriplegic and I'd seen him around the halls in the, in the hospital before, but I'd never really spoken to him. And um, uh, I approached him and I was like, Hey, how are you doing? Seeing you around. And, you know, Whenever you're in hospital with other disabled people, you're like, ah, oh, what happened to you? You know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he started telling me this story about how he was a taxi driver and he got into this car accident and left him a quadriplegic and all this stuff. And But then as he was telling the story, he had this big smile on his face and he started talking about how lucky he was to have his family. He was a father of three kids and they would come in and visit him every day and 
you know, his wife didn't leave him or anything like that, which happens surprisingly more than you would think to people with disabilities. And he just, he, he found himself so fortunate. And it was that moment that it dawned on me that there's really no such thing as good luck or bad luck, but it's very much in, in the eyes of the beholder. It's whoever's making that decision. So I could say that I had bad luck for losing arms and legs, or I could say, well, I had good luck because I was lucky that I got it in Australia and we have a great medical system and I have lovely support from family and friends. And I mean, there's so much that I have to be grateful for that is the sum total of the person you speak to on this call, right? I could definitely frame that as that I'm extremely fortunate. And that's actually something that I believe. So if you have the choice to make that distinction, which I believe everyone does, um, what purpose does it serve to think of yourself as unlucky? In fact, there's scientific evidence to suggest that people who consider themselves lucky actually get luckier. I don't know if you've read much about this. Um, I haven't. British... Yeah, British psychologist. I think his name's Richard. Um, oh God, Dawkins. I'll find it and I'll send it to you. Dawkins. No, it's not. No, it wasn't. It's not Dawkins. So, no, that would be, be too wishy washy for Richard Dawkins. Uh, <laughs> but it's it. But it is a psychological research. I'll, I'll send to you. They they did a bunch of studies where they would have they'd take ten subjects who regarded themselves as lucky people generally, and then ten subjects, let's say that felt that they were unlucky and they would put them through the same process where they'd say, oh, you have to meet someone in a cafe uh, at, and apply for a job or something like that, let's say. I'm paraphrasing all of this, but you'll get the sentiment. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they set the place up so there's a five-pound note on the floor that someone mm -hmm. could pick up if they noticed it and then they, they go in there. The lucky people, something like a really high rate of lucky people notice the five-pound note on the floor right? Because they believe that they're lucky. They believe they're open to opportunity. They're always looking to broaden the canvas of opportunity for luck to happen to them, right? And then even in situations where they sit down to have a meeting with a person and the person doesn't show up, the lucky people will start up a conversation with someone, you know, two tables down, and that person will offer them a job. Obviously, they, you know, they're mm -hmm. placed there by the... so. It, luck begets luck in a way, or you have the ability to imbue yourself with that sense of being a lucky person. Obviously, you're not changing the parameters around you, but the effect that you making the decision to be positive or feel lucky has on the way that you act as a person can actually open you up for more opportunities. That's a wonderful uh, perspective. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be watching out for the luck signals as they kind of take their uh, next steps. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about your life journey, how you have reinvented yourself. Uh, we'll uh, go to the other side of Tom. Three ways to develop curiosity and lateral thinking. Yes. Okay. Easy. I would say redefine the problem that you're trying to solve. Try and the second one would be try to identify false assumptions in things. So, if people are making decisions to solve a problem based on a set of assumptions in society, try to invert those. And then, I think the third one 
would be there's there's a fantastic thing called Triz. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's a, I think it was developed in the so, uh, Soviet era, and it's a problem solving mechanism by which you know you you say let, let's say you have a product or something, and it's a car, and they say well how, you know how do we change this car to make it sell more? It might be like well try making it pink. It might be something completely adjacent to what you would think, and Triz often utilizes what people have done in dissimilar industries to yours. So if you sell perfume, right, and you're trying to uh, solve a problem of sales or marketing of a perfume, right, look to see what they've done in legacy news media when they had to rebrand something, right? Wonderful. It's called a Triz, is it? T-R-E-S. T-R-I-Z, Triz. Yeah, Triz, okay. Wonderful. Good start, lovely start. Can I add a fourth one? Sure, go for it. Okay. Try things that, <laughs> sorry, um, test things that don't make sense on paper, right? Because I think sometimes the only way to solve problems and innovate is by trying things that people haven't tried before. Because if they had tried it before, you wouldn't have to be solving the problem. Yeah, try ridiculous things that don't work on on paper that would be really easy to post-rationalize. Yeah. Yep. Moving on. What is your three advice to your older self, to a Tom of 2030? Okay. Advising my future self, I would say stop working as much as you are because I know that that will be something that continues. Travel more and optimize the time that you spend with your family and your dog. Okay, nice. So on that note, my next question to you is, what are the three things on your bucket list? I don't have a bucket list. You don't? I don't. No. I, on purpose. Yeah. I, I, I don't have a bucket list because I, I don't set goals because I think often goals can be counterproductive to opportunity. So instead of setting goals, I, I set fears, actually. And I think it's a better way to do it. It's a system that I didn't develop myself, but I read it through a guy called Tim Ferriss. I'm sure you're aware yes. of him. And I'm not sure whether he actually developed it or, but I, I read about it through him. And fear setting is something that you do where you will set out the things that might be holding you back from achieving something or doing something. You work out what the worst case scenario of those fears would be or the ramifications. Then you do it in like a table. So you've got like all of your fears set down here. And then on the x-axis, you will have, what can I do to prevent those from happening? And then if they happen because they're out of my control, what do I do to repair that situation? And the interesting thing that happens when you do fear setting is that you become much less fearful about the thing that might happen. So to give you an example, you might say, uh, one of my biggest fears is my wife leaving me, right? And so the next uh, cell would be, well, how do we prevent that? Well, make sure I'm uh, as empathetic as possible. I'm spending as much time with her. I'm doing X, Y, Z. And then you uh, create that as part of your schedule, right? You make sure that you're focusing on it. But then the most important column, which is, you know, if it does happen through no fault of my own, and those things do happen, right? Uh, You know, how will I respond to that? And you actually sometimes have to put yourself in that situation mentally and and think to yourself, well, like, what would I do? Would I move in with a friend? Would I be able to manage the emotional dismay? Like all that sort of stuff. And the, the more that you sort of break it down into the small pieces of the ramifications, you know, a weird thing happens where you 
you kind of feel a bit more confident about it. And you think, well, maybe I could get through something like that. Uh, I have been through things like that before. I've been through breakups or whatever it is. Maybe it's a little bit more complicated because I have kids, but I'd work out a way to sort that out as well. Um, And yeah, just the process of fear setting actually puts your mind at ease that you fear those things less. And often you, you realize that those things are holding you back from achieving other things. No, that's a great perspective. Uh, fear setting also prepares you for any eventuality that you might otherwise not be prepared for. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And I think, you know, that just to, to note something on goals and the reason I don't set goals is because goals often can be altered by people around you. So mm-hmm. I like to focus on that which I control, not that which I don't, because it shifts your focus from things that you can change, from what you must accept to things that you can change, let's say, right? And so you might have an objective like, you know, I want to get better at sales. But if you say something like, I need to meet a particular KPI by this uh, date, right? You know, your boss can change that. Something could happen and get in the way. You know, somebody could move the goalpost for you. Maybe even you get to that uh, goalpost and you know, you've gotten so much better in the meantime that it means nothing to you, right? Or maybe you achieve the goal, but then you just move on to the next goal, right? Which means that you don't savor the moment, you don't enjoy the process along the way, and you get you get too myopic um, thinking about what the goal is. So I will have objectives in my life of things that I want to get better at, things that I want to know. I don't put a time limit on it. I don't put anything like that. And I just open myself up to opportunity as it happens. Then luck happens because you're looking for opportunities and luck creates opportunities. So you're leading, you're leading me on to the next uh, question out here. Uh, this is for our listeners. If you were to recommend three micro experiments that our listeners can take from your own life journey, what would those three micro experiments be like? Okay, so I have one that I use that is a... Um, which I think you would define as a micro experiment, I guess. Uh, breaking habits uh, can be easily done using stickers, right? So I recommended this as, as an idea to a friend of mine, and then I started doing it um, where he was developing a, an obsessive compulsive habit of washing his hands more than is necessary. Um, and I think it came out of COVID. And he said, I, I sometimes do it and I just don't even realize I'm doing it. And so I was like, just get a little pink sticker that's a circle and put it at the tap. And every time you see it, it reminds you not to do something, right? Mm-hmm. Or it reminds you to think about it again. And I, I actually did this with my phone. I remember there was a period where I was spending too much time on social media. And I thought, what would happen? Because I'd open my phone and almost like muscle memory, right? I would just go onto Instagram. I'd go onto Facebook or something, right? And I thought, well, what would happen if I instead of having those apps on my home screen, I would nest them within a folder and then put that folder on the third page. And I just wanted to do it as a little micro experiment. I think my screen time on those apps went down by 60%. Wow. 58, I think it was. It it was high, right? And it's not as though I can't get to those apps. It's just that I'm not doing it naturally in that muscle memory type thing. And so that's something that I do now. I, I design the architecture of my phone such that the most productive apps on it are on the first page and really easy to get to. And the ones that waste my time are hidden and nested within a bunch of folders and they're really difficult to get to. Another thing that I would say to to people would be 
Um, something that works for me, and I know it works for a lot of people, is leaving the house if only for 15 or 20 minutes without any of your devices, right? And just going for a walk. You ever realize that some of the best ideas that you come up with are in the shower? Yes. Right? So you're not distracted by anything and you're not having your attention grabbed by things, right? And you're doing something that is uh, so monotonous that you do every day that you, your brain power is not necessarily focused on what you're doing. It's just happening in the background. And it allows your conscious mind to actually wander a bit. Yeah. And I find that I get that a lot when, when walking, as long as I don't have my phone on me or my AirPods in or anything like that. I mean, I, I use this. Sometimes it's difficult for me because I'll get like a cut on my leg and I can't walk very far. And then my least creative periods is when I can't walk very far. It's ridiculous. But other days I'll be like, oh, I have, you know, 29 pieces of content that I have to get up for, you know, for Instagram or YouTube, whatever it is, right? I'm like, I need to write 29 scripts of about 2,000 words each or something like that. I can sit here in front of a blank page and, and try to generate ideas or I can go for a walk. And if I go for a walk for 15 minutes, like I can't record the amount of ideas that I have, right? To the extent that it becomes a problem that I don't have my phone because I have no way of writing down what I'm thinking, right? And so I think that those periods in your life where you're detached from distractions and you're doing something that's, that your body is so used to that your mind is able to wonder uh, that you come up with some of your best and most creative ideas and pieces during that time. So if you can sacrifice 10 minutes of your day to walk around the block before you go to work, I think you'd be better off for it. Awesome. You remind me of something I read in a book called as Rest, where they have a dedicated chapter on the importance of walk. And a lot of the uh, history kind of has uh, examples of lost of the game changes in history adapted this practice of walking three to four hours a day. That's where the best of creative ideas, mathematicians getting the solution to the problems that they're solving all came out as a result of walking. And again, those days, they didn't have the distractions like a social media or a mobile phone. So it is something that was recommended that for you to get better, practice walk. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you say, that was, you know, back in a time where they didn't have those distractions. So I think it's important now more than ever to actually detach yourself from those kinds of, yeah. Tom, lost of the power of three around. What are your three book recommendations? I would say Anti-Fragility by Nicholas Nassim Taleb is a really good one. Hmm. It talks about systems and ecologies and, you know, e economy. An anti-fragile system is... um is something that benefits from stresses or disorders. So think about your muscular system. You get stronger when you lift weights. Something that's fragile would be like a wine glass that if you break it, it's fucked. It's never coming back. And then something that's resilient actually sits in the middle of that, which is just a rock. And um, that's why I think the, the talk about resilience bothers me because I don't think it actually encourages people to be better from, from negative events or vicissitudes in life. Um, so that, that would be a really good book and you sort of have to take it on face value. He has a very specific style of writing that um, can be hard to pass sometimes, but easy to transpose on real life. Another one uh, would be Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Uh, I think it's I think it's sometimes sort of the surprising the surprising effects of ideas that don't make sense or something like that. And uh, he's a marketing guy, but he's so he's vice president of Ogilvy UK, and uh, he does a lot of work in the behavioral science field. And so for anyone in in marketing or advertising business in general, even if you're not and you're just interested in human psychology, uh, that's a fantastic book. And then, uh, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't recommend uh, my own book, Hook, Line and Sinner, <laughs> which is uh, just just to sneak in a shameless plug. I think that would be it. No, not at all. I think uh, for everybody to read worth their time and uh, money. So we'll definitely put it in the show notes. Uh, that was the power of three round. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being a sport on that. We did talk about the fact that we will talk about anti-fragility. You did briefly mention about uh, Thasib's book out there. But you you have a point of view on why anti-fragility is more important than just focusing on resilience. Tell us a bit more about what, what do you mean by that? What are some of the frameworks and practices one can adapt to develop this mentality, this mindset of being anti-fragile? Yeah, so I kind of realized that I was acting in a bit of an anti-fragile way naturally after having gone through my disability. And I was reading a little bit about um, a field of study called post-traumatic growth, which is almost the opposite of post-traumatic stress, uh, which more people are familiar with, I guess. Uh, but post-traumatic growth is when people go through a trauma or or some sort of a large challenge, I guess, and, and grow stronger as a result out of it. Could be ment- mentally, I guess. Um, and the more I read about it, then I came across Anti-Fragile, the, the, the book and the idea by Nassim Taleb. And as I alluded to before, he, he talks about it in, in the sense of economies in a way and, and a lot in industries. Like if you think about, he talks about um, airlines uh, as an industry are anti-fragile because uh, every time a plane crashes, uh, it forces everyone to do a lot of, you know, audits and upgrade of planes. And so, so the industry as a whole actually gets safer after every crash, right? So the plane on its own is not anti-fragile, but the industry is anti-fragile. Information is anti-fragile, right? Because it actually it, it promulgates itself better when people are trying to conceal it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Then, um, if you know, the, the more you try and hide information about someone, the the more it's going to get out, I guess. And so, there's it can be applied to so many different parts of life and industries and and economies. And obviously, your immune system is anti-fragile because of how it responds to viruses and develops your immune system. Um, and I think right now uh, we're going through a little bit of a stage, at least in the West, where the sentiment to that for people's personal response is almost the opposite, where you know they're they're being more harmed by stresses than they perhaps should be, and they're not uh, utilizing stresses to their advantage. And that's why I think it's an important time to be talking about it in a personal sense. Now, having said that, I don't think that you need to go through adversity to build an anti-fragile character about yourself because being anti-fragile is not just about having been through negative events. It's about being prepared for them to happen as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because everybody's going to experience horrible shit in their lives. That's an inevitability. It doesn't matter who you are. Like 
even if you had the most perfect life possible, uh, your parents are going to die before you, or you know, your partner may get sick, or you will lose a job here and there. There's so many things that can happen to the average person and do on a daily basis that in developing habits that make you anti-fragile, I think, are crucial for human beings. In terms of what habits I think can make you anti-fragile, I think embracing pressures is the, the absolute first step. And that is the salience of knowing that they're going to happen and also reminding yourself that they've happened before and then you've been fine. Right. So we talked about that just a second ago when we're talking about maybe transposing that idea onto in the fear setting sense of uh, a marriage breaking down. And sure, it might be a little bit more gravitas than than a relationship that you've had in the past, but you have been through something like that before. Right. And so reminding yourself that you've actually gone through pressures and come out the other end is a good starting point. I also think uh, diversifying your skill set is a really good way to be anti-fragile. I, I was thinking about this a couple of years ago, an idea that I'd been developing about someone mentioned being good at two things is better than being excellent at one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're never going to be the best at anything, right? But you could create a niche in which you're the best at the intersection of two really opposite things, right? So let's say you're a very good researcher, but you're also a very good interviewer, podcast, perfect, right? You're going to be better than so many people at doing what you do because what you're anchoring towards is the intersection of two things you're good at rather than one you're excellent at. But diversification, you know, also means a diversification in work-life balance as well. And there's a bunch of research to suggest that people who have a hobby, let's say, end up being more creative people even when that hobby is not a creative pursuit. So an example would be, if you like to go fishing on the weekends, but you're a graphic designer, you'll be more creative as a graphic designer if you have a hobby of fishing, which is like, okay, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. Um, so, so diversification can be you know, work-life balance. It can be being good at two things, but it just helps you become agile. And like, you know, that's been the most salient lesson that we should have learned through the pandemic when so many people lost their jobs because they could only do one thing, right? And you look at AI and automation now, if you if all you do is voiceover, right, you've got about eight months, mm. you know? So, so diversification is important. Everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. I think that was Mike Tyson who said that. Um, and... Another one would be learning uh, to manage expectations. So managing expectations is really important because, so there's this thing called impact bias. I don't know if you've heard about impact bias. And it's um, yeah. impact bias is uh, the idea that we always think that things are going to be worse than they are or better than they are, right? Mm. And so in the concept of like taking you back to fear setting and the example of, oh, uh, I, I'm going to get divorced, let's say, the idea is that you always think that you're going to be affected more negatively by a negative event and you always think you're going to be more positively affected by a positive event. I win the lottery. I'll go from a happiness score of 7 to 10, right? Uh, not really how it works, mm-hmm. right? And so learning to have expectations that are not too low and not too high are equally as important, right? Um and the other one is the nocebo effect plays into managing expectations, which is 
the nocebo effect is the opposite to the placebo effect, right? So placebo, I'm sure your listeners will yeah. all know what that is. Uh, but the nocebo is when you expect negative things to happen. So you act in such a way that would ensure those negative outcomes. So an example would be, I'm up for a promotion at work, but I don't believe I'm going to get it. So I don't put the necessary steps in that would be required to actually get the promotion. It's a negative feedback loop, right? And so the managing of expectations has to be a delicate balance. It's not just a case of saying like, um, oh, you're going for a promotion, you know, don't get your hopes up. It, it, it's, a, it's a lot more about balance and self-reflection and realization and knowing that whatever the outcome is, that you will be fine and move on to the next thing. Um, framing techniques are a really good way to deal with negative events in your life. We've touched on those a little bit. Um, I think, you know, it was the artist Rodin, if you know who that is, sculptor, um, who said, um, oh, what was his quote? Nothing is a waste of time if you use the experience wisely. So right? very true, yeah. And if you, and this plays into like sunk cost bias as much as we know, we've been working towards a project, putting so much time into it. And then one of your superiors is like, oh, we're not doing that anymore. Sorry. Thanks for putting in all that effort. Now, that could be extremely demotivating to people, right? Mm. Um, but if you're able to reframe that in a way of like, well, I did so much work on that that I'm, I'm now a better person and I know so much more such that the next one I do is going to, I'm going to kick a goal. Right. Right? And that's a way of framing something precisely. Yeah. Um, yeah, fear setting is a good way to be anti-fragile, framing techniques. Adaptation is a really big one. I think learning uh, when to adapt and also knowing the difference between when you need to adapt to your environment and when your environment needs to adapt to you, right? And I learned this when I, when I first got out of hospital and I was uh, going to live independently in my own house. And they have an occupational therapist who they send in. And the occupational therapist's job is to adapt everything in your house so you can use it as a person with a disability or with hooks or whatever it is, right? And I remember having this conversation with her about this kettle. I just bought this kettle. And she said, uh, oh, can you use that with your hooks? And I'm like, well, not yet. I just bought it, but I'll figure it out. And she said, oh, no, don't worry about that. We'll get you a kettle that, that you can use with your hooks. And I said, no, don't do that. I said, leave this kettle because I don't want to be further imprisoned within my house because I can only use the kettle that's in my house. What happens if I go to a hotel or stay at an Airbnb or I'm at a friend's house? What, I just don't have that skill, right? So the, your skills are transferable, but your environment is always transient. So you want to lean towards developing the skills that you have so you know your skills and limitations before you try to adapt your environment to you if that makes sense. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. Great way to kind of uh, look at it and prepare yourself for the environment that you will be pushed into and not have everything the way you would want it to be. So Tom, you have given me and my listeners a whole bunch of stuff to kind of uh, take back, to kind of uh, ponder over it and implement in their day-to-day uh, -day workings. Uh, before we sign off, uh, this show is all about creating ripples of inspiration. You have been an inspirer yourself. What's your inspire someone today message to all of our listeners? I think my message would be 
you never know what you're capable of until you're truly tested. So don't sell yourself short and don't expect that you wouldn't be able to get through things that you never know you might have been able to, I think. Yep, you have all the potential to do what you want to do. Do not sell yourself short. On that note, uh, signing off on this episode of uh, Inspire Someone today. Thank you, all the listeners, and thank you, Tom. Thank you, Srikanth, for the invitation. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for listening into today's edition of Inspire Someone Today. It's been a privilege to bring in these conversations. If you like this episode and have any feedback or comments, do mail me at inspiresomeonetodaypodcast at the rate gmail.com. Inspiring someone is like creating ripples around us. If you like what you listen, feel free to share them and let's create ripples of inspiration. Do not forget to follow me on my Instagram handle at the rate inspiresomeonetodaypodcast for all the latest updates. This is Srikanth, your host, signing off. And until next time, keep inspiring.